This is a Federal News Network podcast. They say the Army moves on its stomach, but its vehicles are getting less dependent on gasoline and diesel and more on batteries. General Motors is developing battery pack prototypes for the Defense Innovation Unit, as a matter of fact. And joining me in studio with more on this project, the Vice President of Business Development for GM Defense and retired Army Lieutenant General J.D. Johnson. General Johnson, good to have you with us. Tom, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And let's start with GM Defense. I have to confess, I didn't know there was a GM Defense. I mean, Ford and Chrysler used to do this decades ago, but tell us a little bit about the unit itself. Sure. GM has been in the defense business since World War I. Hundreds of thousands of trucks, but you might be surprised to know tanks, airplanes, ammunition. About eight years ago, 10 years ago, GM got out of the defense business. We got a new CEO, new leadership, and the question was, why aren't we in this business? We've got a lot to offer to the military and to the nation's defense, and the technology we're developing could give our troops advantages. So we're back in the defense business and excited to bring those technologies to our soldiers, airmen, Marines. And let's talk about electric vehicles working with DIU. That means this is not a mainstream technology yet or mainstream platform for any of the armed forces or the Army. But what is going on? What are they looking at in terms of where to try to electrify? So the Defense Innovation Unit has been primarily focused on bringing commercial technology into the military. And GM has invested very heavily in battery electric technology for our vehicles. The very first vehicle that was introduced was the GMC Hummer electric vehicle, a so-called super truck. And that's been out there for customers to buy now for some time. We've got other models coming off the line now, but you can imagine the problem you would have if every one of those models had its own battery, own size battery, own way of charging. That used to be the problem in the military. I can remember in my time growing up, I had all kinds of great equipment, but very often they had their own batteries. And so the supply problems associated with that are significant. So the Defense Innovation Unit has said we should standardize this for our vehicles They put out a solicitation. We responded to it and were able to be awarded with that. And so we're helping the military standardize what vehicle batteries ought to look like and how they ought to perform. Now, at the recent AUSA show, there was a hybrid electric tank being shown. Again, I think that's an experimental type of thing. Are we talking about tactical vehicles, transports, or what types of vehicles are they looking to standardize? All, All kinds. All kinds. The, the batteries become, in many cases, kind of the foundation for vehicle power. For light tactical vehicles, wheeled vehicles, the battery power itself, much as with the GMC Hummer EV, powers the vehicle, can power the vehicle through its military missions. Kinds of advantages it has is because you don't have an internal combustion engine, you have almost no thermal signature, which on the modern battlefield is significant. Uh, You don't want to show up like a beacon out there to those who have thermal imaging capability. But it's also as quiet as a mouse. It's not quite a golf cart, but not far from that. So you have a very low acoustic signature as well. When you start getting to larger vehicles like the tank that you mentioned, you have to go for something more like a hybrid solution. But you need those batteries because that's your mission power. Think about that tank turret and all the systems in that turret and the ability 
to find a potential thread, engage it, all the sensors, et cetera. You've got to have that battery power for the missions that that system has to be able to execute. In some ways, that's not all that new idea because diesel electric locomotives have been the standard for several decades now, correct? There have been places in our economy and our society where they've made use of this. Now it's it's being scaled to a level where you could use it to power a tactical vehicle, a light tactical vehicle, a wheeled vehicle. We've built a concept vehicle as an example. We have right now the program of record for the United States Army for a light infantry vehicle called the infantry squad vehicle. Carries a nine-man infantry squad, uh, very lightweight, able to be airdropped, able to be slung under a helicopter. We've electrified one of those just to help the Army understand the art of the possible because that's clearly the future. And the operational benefits, as I've already spoken to, are significant when you're looking at how future forces are going to be looking for every advantage they can get. We're speaking with retired Army Lieutenant General J.D. Johnson. He's now Vice President of Business Development for General Motors Defense. And a couple of questions. If you have, say, that type of wheeled tactical vehicle, range is always a question because when you've got soldiers aboard, You've got to get to the fight, but you've also got to get out of it, if need be, and get back. And so you can't have batteries die, you know, halfway back or or before they turn around. I think power has always been a consideration. I can tell you, when my tanks and my infantry carriers were in operations, I was watching their fuel status very closely and planned my logistics to make sure that before they had a problem, they had a chance to in those cases, receive diesel. The same is going to be true of batteries. I can tell you a helicopter pilot, and I work for a great ex-Apache pilot, trust me, he knew exactly how much fuel he had at any point in the battle because it could be catastrophic not to know that. The military will have to do the same thing with battery power. But the beauty of battery power is, and where we are today, you can get the same range off a battery-powered vehicle as you can off a diesel-powered vehicle. That's where we're at today. And since the military will more than likely initially go to hybrid vehicles, they'll always have some diesel capability to fall back on, either to recharge that battery or to provide power to the vehicle itself. I guess you could have a putt-putt on board in a real emergency and just give a yank on the chain and start the motor to get a little bit of charge in there. There's ways of getting charge. The key is keep soldiers in the fight. You you laid it out well. The last thing you want is you're in the middle of a mission and you run out of the power that you absolutely have to have to recharge your systems. One of the advantages I haven't spoken about yet that is really worth noting is these vehicles export power. You know, up to now, vehicles have been power consumers. Now you've got vehicles that are power exporters. So when you think about all the electric systems that our soldiers, Marines, and others have today – They're forever having to replace batteries or charge batteries. Or whenever you're in a situation where there's a natural disaster or man-made disaster, for that matter, first thing that goes out is power and right with that communications. Think about an organization that can provide that power for first responders, for medical support, to get critical lights back on, communications up. And does the scope of the project you're doing with the Defense Innovation Unit also include charging station infrastructure and the whole idea of the supply chain. I mean, that must be a question also, really two separate questions. What about chargers first? 
So we have been investing in several different technologies because it's clear to us that if the military is going to have an electric vehicle or even a hybrid vehicle, they've got to have the wherewithal to charge it. We've looked at several different technologies, and the one that has the greatest promise is hydrogen fuel cell. A hydrogen fuel cell can create a fast charger that will charge a vehicle in hours as opposed to overnight. And in fact, with just 10 minutes of fast charging, you can get up to 100 kilometers of range, which is significant in a tactical situation. And the other issue across the DOD enterprise, really, is supply chain security and everything you hear about batteries. You know, there's rare earth minerals from China, et cetera, et cetera, chemicals and all of this. What are the supply chain implications, and can these things be made within the materials available in the United States, or at least from nice countries? The answer is absolutely, because GM is so heavily invested in battery electric vehicles going into the future, GM wants to make sure it has a secure supply chain. So that's from where key minerals are are mined uh, back to where they're refined and ultimately where the manufacturing takes place to make sure you've got the quality that you have to have for your private car, but certainly the military has to have. So as you just stated, bring that back home or nearshore it to friendly countries where we know we've got assured access. And is General Motor a prime builder or plan to be of batteries? Yes. They make engines. Yes. No, that's critical to the business case. Uh, We've just built two battery factories at about $2.3 billion a piece. There's two more coming online. And the whole idea is to gain control over the chemistry, gain control over the quality, and drive the price down, drive performance up, and get those batteries where they are successively better, more powerful, lighter weight over time. And just, if you would, as a final question, describe the timelines for this project. What constitutes acceptance, and how do you get it over the valley of death till there's actually a production acquisition that goes on and you start seeing the vehicles come into the Army? It's a great question because it's it's an age-old problem, isn't it, that great technologies don't have a clear route to application. So one of the things that we've been doing, and I, the Army and the Marines have been working this really hard, is to take a look at experimentation to learn as fast as you can at the same time that you're developing the technology so that as you have a demand for a type vehicle that has the attributes that I've talked about, that that supply is there and you can now deliver products to satisfy that demand. So I think that's what helps bridge the valley of death that we've seen before. Retired Army Lieutenant General J.D. Johnson as Vice President of Business Development for GM Defense. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a good time, and I appreciate your time, Tom. We'll post this interview and a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. If your electric car has no AM radio, subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.